divine right of kings had consequences. The Scottish people resisted the divine right of kings because they believed in the right of every Christian to follow his conscience as the Holy Spirit breathed upon the word and spoke directly from the heart of Jesus in areas of our lives that um, Jesus teaches about. And without the interference of a king or the state, uh, the government that you're, you're living in, And it was the Scottish people that have bequeathed to us this great inheritance that we have in America today. The English looked at what it cost the Scottish people to have that privilege of the the right of conscience. And, And they said, we just need to let the king do whatever he wants because the the Scottish clergy were being banished. Some of them were being hanged. There were were imprisonments. There was just all kinds of pain. And uh, they just decided it would be easier to let the king have his way in the English church. And the result of that was that the, the life of the church went terribly off track. And this is the Protestant church now. We're not talking about the Catholic church anymore. And so now as we come to America, we see that it was the English who populated the South and especially beginning in Virginia. And it was the old line Anglican church that went along with the divine right of kings. That's what we're going to find in Virginia. We're going to find people who are very content with this. And what's going to grow up in Virginia is a few families called the Great Planters of Virginia. They're going to develop tobacco plantations. It's going to be a one-crop economy for, uh, I don't know, 100 years. And these um, plantation owners are going to become very, very wealthy. Um, They're going to learn how to work the system, and they're going to become extraordinarily wealthy for their time. Um, One of the most wealthy and well-known of the great planters of Virginia was this man, Robert King Carter. King was not his middle name. It was his nickname because he walked around and he acted like a king. He was a true aristocrat, and uh, he, he reflects probably better than anybody uh, what this great planter of Virginia uh, culture looked like. Robert King Carter lived in the northern neck of Virginia in a place called Nominee Plantation. By the end of his life, he had 300,000 acres that he was working that was divided into um, many different, like well over a dozen plantations. And he had a thousand slaves to work those, um, all of them African slaves. So out of this, um, many of those planters, um, being Anglicans, they built Anglican churches. In fact, virtually all of the Anglican churches in Virginia at that period were built by uh, these planters, and that is um, includes 
Robert King Carter, who built, who built Christ Church in his area of Virginia. And he, of course, frequented that and was buried there. And um, Nominee Hall, which was built by his son on uh, the Nominee Plantation, um, became the heritage of the, of the Carter family for generations in the future. All right, so there is a, an underside to this that we don't like to look at, and that was uh, very much a part of the picture. And, and even though I hesitate to bring this up, it, it nevertheless, it's, it's necessary. It's a part of the truth. God sees the truth. He's a stickler for the truth. And so um, I'm going to be reading to you from the book Foul Means by Anthony Parent of Wake Forest University, um, subtitled The Formation of a Slave Society in Virginia, 1660 to 1740. And this begins to uncover um, the hidden parts that we don't like to look at. It's talking about the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg. Now, Robert King Carter was a member of the House of Burgesses, a delegate uh, from his area, and he ended up being um, actually a governor of Virginia uh, towards the end of his life. And uh, so Anthony Parent um, says this, the assembly, the House of Burgesses, legislated in 1705 that an owner could apply to the county court to have a habitual fugitive dismembered. Court-ordered dismemberment, which often meant cutting off a foot, but could even result in castration, was the most heinous practice for disciplining runaways. But the General Assembly reasoned in 1705 that it would not only reclaim the fugitive, but also would have the effect of terrifying others from like practices. Robert King Carter habitually butchered recidivists, that is, people who kept trying to get away and run away. Uh, he was one of the main guys who would uh, apply this law. He boasted, I have cured many a Negro of running away by this means. And then there's a, a long list of, of people that he dismembered in various ways to keep them from running away. Um, so this is a practice that was deemed necessary for the plantations to keep on running, and it had the blessing of the Anglican Church. We're, ta we're talking about power and might Christianity. How do Christians move into a, 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 a countenancing things that are plainly not in line with the love commandment of Christ or any of the teaching, really, the teaching of Jesus, which we call uh, by my spirit teaching. So uh, for... The whole of the 18th century, the Carter family is going to be contributing to this slave culture, and it's going to grow and develop through the century and right up into the years of the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, and so on. And by that time, it's going to be um, 
Robert Carter III. So it's going to be the time of the grandson of Robert King Carter. And that's who I want to tell about. It's a wonderful story of God miraculously changing a life, but it also happens to be one of the most forgotten stories in American history. And so Robert Carter III is going to have an encounter with a Baptist by the name of Louis Lunsford. This guy was an unusual evangelist, to say the least. Let me read his description. Even his enemies called him the Wonderful Boy. From the time Louis Lunsford acquired that nickname, at the age of 17, he had grown used to the mobs, the pranks, and the arrests. It didn't matter. He knew the saving grace of God. And when the sheriff of Lancaster County threw him in prison in 1775 for creating a disturbance to public order, he posted a bond, accepted a 12-month banishment from that county, and preached elsewhere. When a mob broke up his sermon in August 1778 and tore down the stage on which he spoke, he gathered his followers and renewed the sermon the next day. His indefatigability was legendary. It was said that he once traveled 50 consecutive hours to reach his service on time, and that in order to reach a meeting where he was scheduled to speak, he had once rowed three miles across a river using a garden pail as an oar. And it just goes on. I mean, this guy was a radical, and he was a very unusual person in that time. And he would preach the gospel. Well, somehow or other, Robert Carter III was present at one of those services. And his life was stricken by God. That's all you can say. You know, it goes right back to uh, the early Scottish preacher, George Wishart. I mean, things just happened when this guy preached. And we don't have any record of the details, but Robert Carter's life was utterly changed, transformed, turned upside down to the point where from now on, he is going to go to whatever kind of service he can imagine. Maybe, just maybe, he will still be able to encounter that God. And so he's going to mingle with Baptists. Now, Baptists in those days, you just didn't have aristocrats going to Baptist churches. That was mostly slaves and poor people. Uh, they were the disreputable ones. They were the, you know, the dregs of society became Baptists. Uh, you know, it's, and yet here was Robert Carter. I just sometimes wonder if he disguised himself to go to these services, but he was so hungry for God. And he, he, he counted the lowliest Christian who had experienced what he had experienced as more of a brother than his fellow aristocrats who didn't seem to understand uh, what was happening to him. And so um, now we're in a time now in 17, this was September 6, 1778, when he actually had this this deep conversion experience, this powerful encounter with the living God. And that is right during um, the revolutionary years, the, the Declaration of Independence, and so on. Now, he knows Thomas Jefferson, 
James Madison. He knows them all. He knows uh, George Washington, um, all of them. And, uh, and as he is looking at the American Revolution, he's saying, yes, liberty and justice for all. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's a fight for liberty. And just as, as these guys said it. But he's thinking the whole time that it's going to be liberty for all. And that's going to include his slave friends. And as things go along year after year, and he's starting to realize this is not the direction that um, these great leaders of our country from Virginia are actually going to be leading. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, far to the contrary. I'm going to read to you from um, the first emancipator, Slavery, Religion, and the Quiet Revolution of Robert Carter by Andrew Levy. Levy. It's the story of this man's life, Robert Carter III. A wonderful book. I recommend it to everybody. It shows you a glimpse into, first of all, what the culture was like, but then what God did to change the culture and to challenge the leaders of our nation. So here, by 1785, petitions for general emancipations inspired by Quaker and other dissenting Protestant sects had been delivered to the House of Delegates for consideration. Throughout the state, in fact, dissenting Protestants had been sculpting their anti-slavery positions for a decade and more. The Quaker Robert Pleasance, whose father had tried to free his slaves in 1771 when the practice was still illegal, now tried to entice George Washington and Patrick Henry into placing their crucial signatures on anti-slavery petitions, and to no avail. So finally, Robert Carter III began to realize they didn't have any intention of freeing the slaves. The liberty that they fought for was for white people only. And that was intolerable for him. And so the story of his life is the story of how he, um, even though he did not sense the continuing presence of God in his life, because we're in a period of time that's in spiritual decline. And, and wherever he went, he just did not find it. Yet God had changed him. God had done a work in his life. It was still powerful, and it had changed him permanently. And he had kingdom values and, and kingdom understanding of things, and he had to free his slaves. And so Robert Carter III became the largest private emancipator of slaves. That is to say, he completed the largest private emancipation of slaves in American history. He, uh, in 1789, began to conceive of the idea of a deed of gift. And in 1792, he set it into uh, operation. So he's going to divide all of his 442 slaves into groups. And each group is going to have its time 
to move into emancipation. Now, he's not going to just let him go and come what may, you know, sink or swim. He's going to make sure they get housing. They make sure they, they, they have a way of being uh, freed citizens in this new country. And, uh, and so that's why it's going to take time. It's going to take um, uh, well into the 19th century to complete all of these emancipations, but it's 442. Now, here's what I have to say about that. I believe God was using this man, the most unlikely person in Virginia, where have we heard this before? God choosing the most unlikely person to, to turn that person into a witness of the kingdom of God. And Robert Carter becomes a witness to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry, all of these leaders and it's as though he's saying, you keep saying you can't free the slaves, it's impossible, but I'm doing it. And he did it. And so you see how that removes the excuse. And it, God is saying, you could do it too. Why don't you? But they're saying no. And there's a decision being made, and it's no. Um, and so... You just imagine what would have happened if they had made the other decision. See, sometimes it's a hard decision we have to make. But what we're, save, what we're saving is something much harder down the road, like civil war. I believe if those men had made the other decision and followed in the example of Robert Carter III, we would have had no civil war. Well, just think of that for your own life. And sometimes, you know, God does call us to do hard things. But he knows what he's doing, and he knows what is going to give the greatest blessing to the most people, and especially to our children and our children's children.